From the bottom of Norma Desmond's swimming pool, it's the IGN Digigods. Now please welcome two very important chimps, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Yes, that's got to be one of my favorite references of all time, Sunset Boulevard. Corey, who sent that in? That was brought to you by Lance Taylor. Lance Taylor for all your tailoring needs. And Lansing needs. (laughs) Thanks, Lance Taylor. Long-time listener. Uh, Very funny. Great, uh, fantabulous uh, Sunset Boulevard reference. Chimp, indeed. And um, Wait, I'm busting out right now. The brand new MacBook Pro. Yep, just bought it. You like it? Um, I haven't really busted into it truly yet because I am... Oh, there it is. What? It's obsolete. Mm-hmm. I'm currently taking all the files off my old one and putting it onto this one. So I'm still using my old one while I configure this one. And then once I'm you done do with the real- old one, I'll wipe it out and then sell it on eBay. You do realize there's a way of going just... Well, no, no. There's, okay, this is boring. But here's the thing. I have, a, I have an appointment with the Apple Store, Genius Bar, tomorrow. Yes. Because iTunes. Here's the situation. I have all of my songs... Right. On an external drive. Okay. Now, I'm under the impression that if I have a fresh, brand new, never-before-used Virgin iTunes, I need to do something special in order to get all of the songs from the external hard drive onto the iTunes. Like, I I, I don't want the... I'm explaining this poorly. I don't want the actual songs on the laptop. I want the the actual physical songs to remain on the external hard drive. Right. All I want on the the MacBook Pro is the library, just a list of songs. And I'm under the impression that there's a way to do that that I will invariably screw up that makes me want to go to the Genius Bar and have them do it in five seconds. I don't know why you'd even want to do that, but fine. Wait, well, what, 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 what does that mean? What, what would uh, you do? I, I, I would put the songs on the laptop. Why? I have all my songs back. Well, here's the thing. I have all my photos on the laptop because I, I, I access my photos a lot. Okay, whatever. But the songs, I don't access a lot because the songs That's are on my iPod. We have all sorts of stupid songs anyway, yeah. like, you know, weird yeah. French you pop know, music crap. At, at this point, we really should uh, pay tribute to uh, Robin Williams uh, because last week was uh, a real bummer. I think for everybody who, at any point, where if if he was a, a an icon, a television icon, a movie icon to you at any point in his career, and I realize for a lot of people, he's Teddy Roosevelt in the Night at the Museum movies. That's I, very sad. I realize that, uh, and for some of us, you know, he's Mork. Uh, you know, he was discovered by Fonzie, and uh, to me, he's just a guy who was always there. He was just always I mean, he there. He was part of our sitcom movie going live since the 70s. And also stand-up but comedy live. Stand-up comedy, amazing shows, you know. Uh, all that stuff he did with Whoopi Goldberg and Billy Crystal with the, with the uh, what was it called? The, the, their uh, comic aid? Comedy aid? What was uh, it called? Yes. That whole thing. But, I mean, ultimately, really, he became a, tele- a, a movie icon in the 1980s. And he had that incredible run in the 80s and the 90s of just... One after another after another mega hit, and they were like amazing performances. I mean, Good Morning Vietnam and and uh, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, Mrs. Doubtfire and, and Will Hunting and, and, and Dead Poets Society, Dead Poet Society. and uh, you know starting kind of starting with Moscow on the Hudson and that whole period. I mean, just amazing stuff. Well, he had also this late period dramatic 
run with like one hour photo with yeah. world's greatest dad oh, world, one hour photo was great so i like world's greatest dad too bobcat goldthwait yeah but uh yeah he had a very interesting career that sort of uh entered and exited these different phases and well. you get that with comics because you know comics start out wanting to be mrs doubtfire and yeah. then when you realize that most comics are very dark depressive people they are they want to do stuff like one hour photo and yeah. uh, world's greatest dad yeah you know and Gosh. it just you know you you look at a guy like that and you realize that the reason why he you know the reason why he was so manic and to me the reason why he was so manic and the reason why he was a gamer you know he was a big video yeah. game guy yeah. is that pretty much he needed constant stimulation so he can outrun his demons yeah and eventually his demons caught up with him apparently he and Tom Hanks were uh, big on gaming together is that right? yeah a lot of first person shooter you know got you Hanks oh damn you Williams Anyway, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? <laughs> that, that that they're sitting at home in their underwear, like playing World of Warcraft. That is just bizarre. It's it's fairly amusing, but he leaves uh, behind an amazing legacy. So, such as, I mean, it's a horrible loss. It's it's had me just bummed for the whole week. And you you realize, you know, money and success and fame, all of those things, they they don't fill the empty spaces when there are emotional problems and life problems. Everyone's fighting a battle. They are. But his you know? his death. I have to say, seems to me more of a bummer than other recent yeah, celebrity deaths. There's something about him. Maybe because he was seemed so childlike, or he was around so long, he, he was around, so beloved. Because he was around so You know, and I'll, I'll tell you what it was. Because there, there, it was sort of because there was no private Robin Williams. He invited everybody in. Everyone else has their private life and their public life. And Robin Williams, it just felt like he was always talking about himself, his problems, his issues. And when he went on to a talk show or when he went into an interview, it was just he was 100%. He, and, and, yeah, he was on. He was performing. But, you know, if, it just there was something that invited everyone into his experience whenever he was doing something. And I think as a result, everyone felt close to him. I think we all felt close to him on some level. That's true. And nobody had anything bad to say about him. Even no. while he was alive, maybe you, maybe you thought his manic comedy was not your taste, but nobody ever said, boy, was he a jerk when he went to visit the no. Tonight Show. Boy, I ran into him in a restaurant. You, he was a jerk. You never heard that. Did you, uh, did you read uh, Harvey Weinstein's story about the practical joke that he played on uh, Stone Skarsgård on, uh, on the set of Good Will Hunting? Yes, I did. Wasn't that funny? That is funny. And you know, Norm MacDonald had an amazing Twitter run where through Twitter he recounted uh, how Robin Williams was booked on Letterman uh, the same night as Norm Macdonald was booked his first night on Letterman. Yeah. So it was Robin Williams as the lead guest, and then Norm Macdonald, in his very first appearance on Letterman, was also booked on the same show, mm. and Norm was very, very nervous. And you should read it on Twitter if you haven't already. Norm Macdonald, in, 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 in 140-character chunks, yeah. recounts what it was like to be a, a nervous young comic going on after an icon like Robin Williams on Letterman and how Robin Williams just made him feel so comfortable and wonderful and wanted him to succeed. And it's just an amazing story, which you should yeah. check out on Twitter. Yeah, it's great. I, I mean, I still remember so many of his guest spots on talk shows because they never went as planned. You know, and, and you, you, know, you know this better than anybody else. I mean, worked on talk shows, but the, there, there is nothing very spontaneous when a guest goes on a show. You've been pre-interviewed and you've worked things out with the host and there are certain things that are going... Like when a stand-up is a guest on... You know Jay Leno or Jimmy Fallon or whoever. Uh, they that that th that dialogue that goes on is rehearsed. It's completely planned. The uh, the guest the host is feeding them the lines that they they need to have fed so they can do basically a mini routine. Uh, Rob Williams never did that. 
I mean, he, he went so far off the, the reservation so many times, and I remember watching him on Carson once. And Johnny was inconsolable. He was inconsolable. He was laughing so hard because Robin was so unhinged. And it all began because this was back in the day before people wore their, their uh, wireless mics on their belt into the, you know, when they had the, the boom mic that was kind of hanging over you. Sure. And it's off camera, but Robin just started pretending like he was Flipper and the boom mic was some kind of a, a sardine that the, uh, was being held over him and he just he went into this manic thing and it was hysterical and the camera pulls back and you see the boom mic and you see the boom guy cracking up and you see Johnny losing it. It was great. Well, as a, as a person, as you say, who used to make his living producing celebrity interviews on talk shows, there are certain guests where you're worried because <laughs> you got you got nothing out of the pre-interview and they're not a good guest, but you gotta you gotta hope it happens. Yeah. Then there's on the other end of the spectrum, there's guests like Robin Williams, where you know it's going to be funny. Whatever happens, you know that you know what I can put I can put together the worst segment. You know I don't know if Robin pre-interviewed or not, but it didn't even matter. You knew that if Robin was coming on your talk show, it was going to be great. Yeah. You didn't have to worry that it wasn't going to be funny. You didn't have to worry he didn't have three stories. You know, and, and a plug. You didn't have to worry; he wouldn't have energy. You, he's one of those guests where you just knew he was going to deliver. Yeah, and it, it was it was a great solace for for talk show segment producers the world over, as well as the host. Yeah, because you know all you have to do with Rob Williams is just keep up with him. As the host, you just have yeah. to keep up with him. You know, so it's great. So it's well, uh, he'll he'll be he'll be sorely missed. But again, he has an amazing legacy of work that you guys can enjoy I, on Blu-ray and DVD. I think it's unfair to recommend just one Robin Williams film. So. It, what would you recommend for people who feel like they want to pay tribute to him, get to know him better, uh, well, do, I was, do justice to his, his filmography? What well, do you I was going to try to maybe recommend something that you know maybe might be a little bit off the beaten path. So I was first of all, he's in Deconstructing Harry, the Woody Allen film. True. So that's good. I uh, I think, and I have a feeling you're going to say this. Death to Smoochie. <laughs> right? Yeah. You love Death to Smoochie? Oh, I love that film. That's funny. I love that film so much. I also love Insomnia, which is a very, yeah. you know, also if you want quintessential Robin Williams, you can also do The Birdcage. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great stuff in there. I, I, would, I would say Death to Smoochie and The Birdcage probably made me laugh more and harder than anything else he's ever done. Uh, and partly because he has such a great supporting cast in both of them. I, I mean, you know, Hank, Hank Azaria and so many people are just so great in those two movies. Uh, but I, for me, it really comes down to um, Dead Poets Society and uh, Good Morning Vietnam. That's true. Or Fisher King. Say. Fisher King, too. But Good Morning Vietnam and Dead Poets Society, for me, that's, that's where you see him at his level best in every conceivable way. And especially Good Morning Vietnam because they really did just let him go. On all of that radio stuff, he went nuts, and he got to be manic, but he also got to play really dramatic. And all of the dramatic stuff with the kid and with the girl and everything else in that movie is so heartrending. And I probably quote that movie, I quote one line of his, more often than I think any other line from that movie. And uh, it's a line that he delivers to to Forrest Whitaker. Good, morning, Forrest, Vi- good morning, Vietnam. No, it's when Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker. Remember, he's a little bit of business in the movie, right? When right. He, he the jeep is already running, but he still turns the ignition, and he always grinds the ignition. Right. And uh, at the very end of the movie, Robin, when he does it again, driving him away, Robin Williams says, "Staggers the imagination." <laughs> you want to know? And, what's... Said, and, and, and Forrest Whitaker says, "Makes me unique, though, sir, doesn't it?" 
and it's great. And, and I say that all the time. Whenever there's just something incredulous that I just can't, I can't process, I just always say it staggers the imagination. Well, in that case, Robin Williams' death definitely staggers the imagination. It does. But you know what? You know, the last thing I'll say about Robin Williams is that the one film that, when I was a little tyke, um, I really loved, which has not been part of the Robin Williams filmography conversation now that he's died, yeah. is uh, World According to Garp. True. No one's really talked about the world according to. And that was a, that's a terrific film. That was the first big thing that he did. Yeah, it was George Roy Hill. It Butch was Cassidy. George Roy Hill. It was John Lithgow before anybody really knew who John Lithgow was in an Oscar-nominated performance. Uh, you know, it was that was that was a hell of a movie. Yeah. And uh, and you know, uh, and that's a good rental. So obviously, that, that yeah. might be one that slipped through the cracks a little bit. Yeah. So if you have Netflix, you may want to check out the world according to Garp. And uh, many others. So Robin Williams obviously will be uh, sorely missed, not only just him as a person, but also his place within the Hollywood uh, you know, firmament in terms of being able to be a comic, being yep. able to be a serious actor, being able to be you know, a great talk show guest. There's a hole now in that. There is. There really, I mean, maybe what, Jack Black, maybe? I don't know. There's really nobody like him. It's nobody. You know? There isn't anybody. There's no one out there who does. There, no. there was never anyone before who did what he did. Right. You know, he was, he was the only one. So before we launch into the Blu-rays and the DVDs, I want to give a quick uh, shout-out to, you know, we, we t- we're going to be talking about some Twilight Time titles this week. Uh, the amazing Twilight Time uh, titles that are always limited release all have isolated scores on them, and they are available at ScreenArchives.com. And ScreenArchives.com is also the home of uh, the limited release soundtracks on CD from La La Land. And there's a bunch of great La La Land stuff out this week that uh, I should mention as well. Uh, music from the motion pictures, The Naked Gun Trilogy by Ira Newborn. That's a, a, a really cool uh, three-disc uh, box set, if you like the music from the Naked Gun films. Uh, Mark Snow's original score from uh, The X-Files, Fight the Future, uh, which is a really underrated score. The In-Laws, the original In-Laws, which our good friend Richie's dad is very funny in as the... Serpentine. Yes. Speaking of which, you know, speaking of the in-laws, not yes. to interrupt you, which I am. Yeah. Um, I, I watched, I had, it took me a while to get around to watching all of it, uh, all of this blue, new Blu-ray version, but I watched Wings of Desire. Oh. Peter, Peter, speaking of Peter Falk. Yeah. And uh, you know what's funny is that, is that I, I hadn't seen it from beginning to end in a long time. And obviously it's a magical film. It's one of the best shot films I've ever seen. But I have to say that the only thing about the movie that struck me in this in this otherwise magical film that mm-hmm. is one of the most beautifully shot films I've ever seen, is that as the angels are, are floating around Berlin, you know, listening to everybody's thoughts, not everybody has, like, deep thoughts about time and existence. I mean, like, literally, the, the, like, some woman in a laundromat in a is having Bender's thoughts about uh, time and existence. I'm like, you know what? That's not that realistic. But uh, I'm just being a little bit... I'm just they, being, they little, I'm, I'm, I'm being cheeky. Obviously, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing film. Now, by the way, the cinematographer for that film... Uh, Henri Alakan. You know his whole story, right? He shot a bunch of... Um... He, he died about a little over a decade ago at, uh, at like uh, 93 years old or something like that. But he shot stuff like La Bataille du Rai in 1946. Okay? Uh, Anna Karenina in 1948. Uh, I mean, he shot like... He was a big deal in, starting in the 30s. He started shooting his movies in the 30s. He shot Roman Holiday. Wow. Okay? The guy who shot Roman Holiday shot Wings of Desire. So just want you to understand that, that he, was, he is a, like an old school legend. He was, 
he was an old dude when they shot Wings of Desire. Oh, it's so gorgeous. And, Unbelievably and gorgeous. all of those effects, all the fade-ins and the fade and the disappearing angels and the wings appearing and all that in stuff. In camera. In camera. Right. All of that was done in camera. No and, opticals. You know, they actually, I, 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 know, I, know, I noticed this. They actually, you know, the, uh, the French uh, acrobat, right, who he falls yeah. in love with, he, she plays for a circus called, yep. uh, that's named after him. Yeah, it's called the Circus Ala. What's his name? Uh, 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 Alakan. It's named yeah. the same. The Circus he was, Alakan. He was, he was almost eighty years old when he shot that. That's gorgeous. Star. Amazing. So anyway, it was Vim Vanders himself who told that story when I, I did a little Q and A with him at the uh, uh, Cinematheque. Don't, don't oh, name drop. I'm, I'm just sorry. saying. There, I'm just oh. trying to say a nice thing about a nice movie, I know. and you're name dropping. Yep, sure am. Anyway, also uh, also uh, among these new CDs, anyway, John Morris's score for the In Laws. That's how we got off on this tangent. John Morris, of course, do, did all the uh, all the Mel Brooks stuff. Amazing composer. Elephant Man and many other great scores. Uh, Amnesty International uh, released the Human Rights Concerts, 86 to 98. Has a lot of great performances. Uh, the Adams Family uh, by Mark Shaman, which is not bad. I'm not a Mark Shaman fan, but it's all right. Uh, Marvin Hamlish's score, a little-known score, in a limited edition release for that movie, Daryl. You remember Daryl? Oh, was that the, like the, a robot? The like acronym, a kid, yeah. A kid robot or something? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I haven't thought about that movie in years. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I, I remember liking that film when I was a kid. Get the microphone closer. Oh, okay. Sorry. Oh, why? Why now? We we. Holy blimmin! There we go. That's better. Oh, are we going now? No, we're we're, we're fine. Don't stop the recording. I'm not. I'm okay. Not. I remember we, we, liking Daryl. Your, your mic for a moment. I remember liking Daryl as a kid. From what little I remember about it. Yeah. But I bet if we saw Daryl today, it'd be dreadful. It's terrible. I'm it's sure not, it's it, dreadful. It, it's dreadful. And then the last one I want to make a big shout out for a uh, limited edition release on CD of Altered States, the Oscar nominated <gasps> oh. score from John Carigliano, and uh, that is a heck of a score. Oh yeah, That's he was a heck of a he was an interesting composer. He did really, a lot of avant-garde stuff. Really, really interesting. I mean, and still, I would say this is maybe the best Ken Russell movie ever made. Uh, Oddly enough, thank it's, you, Patty Chayefsky, for for you know <laughs> for wrestling this director into shape. Well, uh, it's funny because like it's almost ironic or kind of comical that Altered States is the most coherent you know uh, film that that director ever made, and he's made some crazy films. Ken Russell's made some crazy films. Altered States is one of the most coherent, and yet that film is not really that coherent. It's it, I, I love it though. I really oh, it's do. great! You kidding me? It's great. Yeah. Is, is that on Blu-ray? Do I have that on Blu-ray? Is that Altered on Blu-ray? States is that on Blu-ray? Uh, I believe it is. This is how. Hold on. Something tells me we've talked about Altered States on Blu-ray. Hang on. Yes, it came out on Blu-ray uh, two years ago. Warner released it two years ago. Uh, Wait. Well, here's that the thing. Was, that was. Uh, in fact, it, w- it came out in uh, July of 2012, and I must have been merciless in writing them to get it to us because we, we covered it in December of that year, like five months later. Now, anyway. uh, here's the thing. I, I, yeah. I know we haven't talked about Blu-rays yet, yep. and, and we, we, we will. We, well, we we're going to kick butt here in a moment. But I, I want to bring up uh, the Criterion November titles, yes. which they just announced. And we'll talk about a couple of Criterions as soon as you're done with that. Wade... I don't know what it is with Criterion. I don't know why Criterion would want to release Tootsie. I do. But thank God they are. It just seems like a very un-Criterion film, but I am so unbelievably beyond happy. I saw that, and I just thought, thank God. And you remember at the time, I remember thinking, well, Tootsie's a really good movie. Because that was a good year. That was the year of E.T. and and Gandhi and... E.T. E- e- and Gandhi and, uh, and Das Boot and uh, The Verdict. I mean, all that was the same. Yes. What a great year that was. We look back on it, it's like, my gosh, what if we had a year like that again? Studio films. It was all, Those were all studio, studio films. films. 
Can you imagine if the studios made a slate like that? I mean, Das Boot wasn't, obviously, but can you imagine if the studios made a slate this like a, on any year now that included The Verdict, E.T., Tootsie, uh, Gandhi? Holy cow. All those movies, especially, the, would, they, they'd all be festival pickups or just, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. They, the studios wouldn't make them. I mean, Melvin and Howard was that year as well, Jonathan Demme. That was like a, a minor film that year. You know? Amazing. Uh, it's well, just... Melvin and Howard would definitely be like a, like a festival. Film. Yeah. So anyway, so Tootsie coming out, the new 4K digital restoration, a making of um, interview with uh, <laughs> interview with Dorothy Michaels by uh, the old critic Gene oh, Shalit. Too damn funny. Audio commentary featuring uh, Sidney Pollack, which was taken from the Criterion's Laserdisc. Yep. Now we also have it happened one night, which is also a, a surprising and amazing. Yep. It happened one night. Um, Frank Capra, Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert, one of the great, you know, early sound comedies. Yep. And uh, it's great. I mean, I just cannot wait for it. It happened one night. I cannot wait for Tootsie. Of course, it's also uh, oh, it's the best. La Ventura also. Yeah, yeah which is Very uh, excited amazing. about. So this really, really good criterion is just really stepping it up. It's just amazing. Oh, I love it. Now, also, the one thing we should probably talk about, which was it's a couple of days old, but... Um, what do you think of this whole, and, and this is mentioned on the Facebook page too, what do you think of this whole Edge of Tomorrow Blu-ray situation where they basically oh, changed whatever. the title? Now, now, it's not like kind of, it's not, it's moderately you know, unprecedented, but not really unprecedented. So, to fill people in who aren't on the Facebook page or whatever, the Edge of Tomorrow has now be, become, they've now adopted the tagline as the new title of the movie, which is uh, uh, Live, Die, Repeat. Live, Die, Repeat, colon, Edge of Tomorrow, which is stupid. Um, no, this is look. This has been done many, many times before, and uh, foreign films have done it, and domestic films have done it, and uh, it's it's certainly nothing new. It's just new for a Tom Cruise tentpole film in the summertime. That's the only thing that it's new for. But if a movie doesn't perform in theaters, they you know they will try to find a way of beefing up the title in uh, in theatrical release. Yeah. So now or in, it's in, uh, uh, home release. In home release. So. Now it's called Live Die Repeat. Whatever. That's fine. It's the same movie. <laughs> it's okay. the same movie. It's the same movie. So uh, a couple of crit- criterions this week. Foreign language films. Fantastic. Both of them. Both of them uh, among the last Blu-ray DVD dual format editions. So go get them while you can. One is Pedro Almodovar's Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, which is a wonderful film. It was controversial at the time. I, I don't really understand why. I guess because it kind of, you know, it, it was, it was it, uh, the, the sort of S&M-ish um, angle on it you know uh, the the a person who's you know abducted winds up sort of liking it i i don't i don't know uh but uh, victoria abril is wonderful in it antonio banderas really um is the kind of you know the psycho of the piece this is the film that made him i mean this is when people discovered antonio banderas and he started getting hollywood offers uh it's a great film it's beautifully shot and uh it it comes with gobs and gobs and gobs of interviews and uh video uh tidbits like a conversation from 2003 between uh, Banderas and Pedro Almodovar um premiere party footage in Madrid I mean it's just loaded with tons of great stuff and my favorite of all of them um is uh, is actually in the booklet which has a um uh a conversation between uh, Ken Jones and Wes Anderson which is uh, pretty great. Uh, Wes Anderson's always fun to uh, fun in interviews. So anyway, this is from a 2K no, digital great. restoration. And then there's also... 2K, which is a bit um, disappointing. It's sufficient. 
Uh, and then uh, Alfonso Cuarón's Y Tu Mama Tambien, which is still wonderful, still absolutely fantastic. Great Lubetsky cinematography, as usual. Uh, better film than Gravity, I have to say, from both of them. Whoa! Yeah, Gravity's fine, but, you know... Uh, well, it's, okay, Gravity's a way different film than, this, than a coming-of-age oh, totally, uh, yeah. thing. But what, what, you know, what great performances from um, uh, Gil Garcia Bernal and uh, Diego Luna. I what mean, happened to Gil Garcia Bernal, man? That guy just... Yeah, he shows up in stuff now and again. But I mean, from both of them, this they were just great. everyone in this is just right at the top of their their, their talents, and this has just a gorgeous uh, DTS uh, audio track, and it's fantastic. There's an onset documentary that they shot in 2001 here, a lot of deleted scenes, and uh, a couple of new little featurettes with uh, new interviews, and uh, it's all great, really, really great. So Itu Mama Tambien is fantastic. Tiny Up, Tiny Down is fantastic. You should own both of them. Mark, shall we talk about some uh, some new movies? Uh, we should. We can talk about um, the latest uh, the latest unnecessary s- s- stockholder approved slab of spider product. Oh gosh! Called the Amazing Spider Man Two. Unfortunate. You know, I have to say, I, I, you know, you watch Amazing Spider Man Two, which, which is just you know completely averagely average. And it really makes you wonder what Marvel Studios would have done with this character. And they're, yeah. they're, and they're, they're like never going to know. Yeah. Unless Sony farms it out to them at like some exorbitant cost. Yeah, I know. You know, uh, we'll, just, uh, we'll just never know what a real Spider-Man film is going to be like. Because this one, you know, is one of those films where there's nothing wrong with it. It just, it, it's, it seems, unlike all the, other, all the other Marvel Studio films that are completely mercenary and unnecessary, but are still a lot of fun yeah. and very well crafted... You know, you get this, which just seems mercenary and unnecessary. Well, Sony has to keep making uh, Spider-Man movies, or else they lose the, the rights, and it reverts back to Disney. And if anybody is upset with the stuff that Sony is doing, let me issue this warning. Imagine what will happen to Spider-Man if the franchise reverts back to Disney and Marvel. No, it'll be good. Oh, no, no. Really? really? Yeah, what, suddenly Spider-Man will be... No, I, it, no. I, I know, truly. Is well, Okay, could it be any worse than, be than any, these films? Oh, yeah. You betcha. Really? Hell yeah. They, Marvel has slam dunked every, every superhero film they've done. But, but think about how good the previous one was. Really? Think about how good the pre- Mark Webb did a wonderful job. Do you think Marvel and Disney would ever have hired Mark Webb? That's not, that's not their kind of a hire. Well, he, well but here's the That's well, a Sony hire. Oh, meaning that uh, it, that they're, they they bring in the guy from Five Hundred Days of Summer to accentuate yeah. the. But here's the thing, though they they didn't really accentuate the relationship that much. I mean, he's it's still a superhero movie. True, they didn't really get into the Peter Parker. He's a you know That's troubled true. teenager and blah blah blah. Yeah. Yeah, any of that. Yeah, and you know, quite frankly, Marvel has Marvel's taken some Marvel's taken some chances with the directors that they've hired. A know? few. You know, look, Captain America 2, which I thought was absolutely terrific. It's a great entertainment. Captain America 2, directed by the guys who did You, Me, and Dupree. I know. Who would have thought that? I would have. Now, I will agree with you in one sense, which is that I don't know that Marvel would hire somebody who can sell relationships on any realistic ground-level way. You know, they would want him to be somebody who can pretty much sell Kevin Feige, whatever his name is, uh, you know. All all Kevin cares about is like gigantic ships crashing into like other gigantic ships. That's all he cares about. Yep. You know he's not really a relationship guy, but still, I would love to know what a um, Marvel Studios uh, Spider-Man film would look like. Although this Blu-ray is beautiful, it's a beautiful looking Blu-ray. All the electric bolts and whatnot coming out of Electro, played by Jamie Foxx, are all beautiful. There's a um, there's a commentary 
which is uh, kind of enlightening. I mean, you know, after after a while, it's all about well, we were acting in front of a green screen. It was really tough. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm kind of enough of that. Um, and then we have four deleted scenes, none of which were necessary for the final film. Um, so there you go, Amazing Spider-Man Two. Uh, you know, look, if you got to have it, I guess you got to have it. It's a fine rental on a Saturday night if you must. But otherwise, I have to say, I just really I feel like this is the this was the this is the crown jewel in Marvel's comic book canon, and we will never know how good it could be as a movie until someday, some way, Marvel does it. Totally, I I I will. You don't agree. I don't agree. Uh, I I think Marvel would screw it up, but um, eventually Marvel will take control of the franchise. I'm sure. Really? There's, there's, I'm sure at some point they will. Maybe in 20 years. But until then, Sony's going to keep. Sony's got a whole spider world that they're going to be exploiting soon. Yeah, but that's it's, you know what's funny is like, you know, Marvel. Did you ever think that we would grow up in a world where people would spend like you know a billion dollars for a gigantic? Crossover issue. I mean, that we're just seeing nothing but That's crossover true. issues that and we grew up on, and ninety cents old. a pop. And it'll get old soon. Well, no, well, you it know, will. look, look, but that's but that's where Guardians of the Galaxy was a real test for them. All right. I mean, they were able to sell that, and it's a good film. So, uh, a couple from Arc. Wait, uh, by the way, we would rather yeah, talk yeah. about. Uh, we, got, we, we got a lot to go home through. Home is where we, the look home. at this. Look at this. We got to get through right, this. I'll, all right. This right. right here. This is what it's all about. All right. I'll be so quiet. We've got to blow through this. Um, so a couple from ARC really quickly that come with a DVD and Voodoo digital copies. Thank God. V-U-D-U. Uh, one is called Jesse, which is a pretty straight, although competent, uh, revenge thriller. The only twist is it's about a woman. Her brother gets, uh, you know, her brother disappears and he got in with the wrong crowd and she's a cop with a drinking problem and she's got to grab her piece and go and unleash hell on the town. His name Jesse is the name of the movie. J E S S E stars uh, Stephanie Finocchio, and stars Pinocchio. Stephanie Finocchio, and if you don't know who she is, doesn't matter. Everybody else in this is kind of playing the parts that they've always uh, get. This um, Eric Roberts, Armand Asante, and William Forsythe playing a mobster. Does that not scream B movie to you? Oh uh, yes. Yeah, Eric Roberts alone would do that. Anyway, uh, it, but you know what? It's perfectly serviceable. It's it doesn't transcend the genre, but it is what it is. It's fine. And then uh, a, a, a tender little bit of mush. Not my kind of movie, but a lot of people like this family film called Home is Where the Heart Is. Aww. It's also a, re- a revenge thriller. Lame. No, no, obviously not. Uh, you know what elevates this thing? Uh, a couple of great performances. One from John C. McGinley, who I always like. Uh, never much liked him on Scrubs. I always thought he, it's like, well, he was trying too hard, but he's a really good actor, and when he does stuff like this, he really gets to show that. And then um, uh, Bailey Madison. You like Bailey Madison? Ashley Madison? You mean oh, the website? Bailey Madison. Who's that? Bailey Madison. We all know him. He was one of the henchmen guys in the original uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, really? Yeah. He's the, guy, he's the guy that like, yeah, cuz. Remember that whole thing? This guy. This guy right there. Bailey Madison. He's a great actor. Looks like Jonathan Banks. He's a great actor. He's a terrific character actor. He's been around forever, and he's so good in this. He's really, really good, and I'm glad he's getting, you know, finally at this point in his career, getting some bigger parts. Anyway, uh, you know, this is one of those kind of uh, small-town Texas things. This actress goes back to her small town and uh, gets to know the little sister that she left when, you know, she was making her career big a long time later. I mean, uh, it, it's it, it's kind of predictable in many respects but it's really nice it's a nice little slice of uh, hometown small town Americana and people getting in touch with their roots and uh, it's very enjoyable uh, speaking of enjoyable um, you guys gotta check out Only Lovers Left Alive now if you were really getting sick of the whole vampire thing 
you really can't get sick of any genre if Jim Jarmusch is about to tackle it. Totally true. And what Jarmusch does here is very interesting because the film is pretty commercial for Jim Jarmusch. You know, it's just sort of like a slight tweak on the whole vampire thing. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's sort of a, it's, I mean, it's a thin love story, but meant to be. It's really more about mood and attitude and the tweaking of the genre. But it's about these two, you know, world-weary vampires played by Tilda Swinton. And every Tilda Swinton performance at this point, especially after um, Snowpiercer, every Tilda Swinton performance uh, in I Am Love, and she is just way out there. I mean, she just, she is no holds barred every time out, Tilda Swinton, and she's great, and Tom Hiddleston is also great. We all, every, all the kids love the Tom Hiddleston. Sure, I love, the, I can't get enough of Tom Hiddleston. I really can't. No, he's, he's cool. He's just awesome. So, uh, it's great. It's just a very interesting take on the whole vampire thing. It's, a, you know, they're very sensitive, and, uh, and they, you know, it's, you know, the thing with Jarmish is that he's got this very laid back kind of vibe, so this is not, he's able to take the vampire genre and fit it into his aesthetic, as opposed to, you know, being a guy for hire doing a vampire film, which is kind of what happened with Catherine Hardwick with the original Twilight, in a sense, even though yep. it's... But, uh, so, I mean, the, those two are kind of analogous. But, um, anyway, this film is just terrific. It looks beautiful. Um, it's, uh, it's a little long, but still, I thought it was great. It's a very interesting work from a very interesting director who really kind of could have used a bit of a hit because he was kind of sinking into, like, super indie land. So it's kind of nice that... Um, uh, that he knocked out of the park with this. It also co-stars uh, Mia Wasikowska as um, Tilda Swinton's sister, and uh, it's good stuff. And Anton Yelchin is in it too, who plays uh, uh, Chekhov in the Star Trek films. Totally. So could not uh, could not recommend this enough. Only lovers left alive. So uh, segueing from the vampire thing into much uh, cheesier genre fare, uh, Agency of Vengeance: Dark Rising is actually quite a hoot. This is from Level 33, and if you just like straight-up B-movies that are unafraid of admitting that they are B-movies, this is great. It's like a cross between Men in Black and Barbarella. Uh, Basically, the idea is that uh, Michael Ironside runs this kind of Men in Black operation, and they think that some evil demon is going to usher in an apocalypse and destroy the Earth. So they basically get this uh, big-chested woman with big guns and a bikini to be the secret agent who stops the whole thing. None of it really makes a lot of sense. The effects are very, very lowbrow, but somehow the whole thing is just silly enough to be thoroughly entertaining. So I kind of, you know, the, the the cover art, which <laughs> shows her in her her uh, her military bikini with, uh, you know, with like ammo belt and uh, dog tags and holding this gigantic gun. This really says it all. Remember when movies like used to be sold on a, on poster art like this, and then they had to go figure out what the story was. Sure. That's well, it's, it's, it's still great. around. It's called AFM. Exactly. And then we've also got uh, a little thing called, <laughs> I can't believe they're, they're going there, Amber, Amber Alert, Terror on the Highway. And this is with Tom Berenger, who used to have a career. Uh, like all these movies, it's got a pistol on the cover. He will stop at nothing. Amber Alert, of course, is what uh, makes our iPhones vibrate anytime someone abducts a child. No, it doesn't just make it vibrate. It makes it scream. Have you ever been in a public place when those Amber Alerts hit? Oh, my God. And they, you hear, like, I, mean, I was in Costco once. I was walking on an island in Costco, and suddenly, I swear, I thought it was an alien invasion. It was, you just hear that sound, and you just go, what the? F-? And you realize it's not just my iPhone. It's 350 iPhones all in Costco going off at the exact same time. It was one of them per- happened. I remember one of them happened in the middle of the night oh, a few months ago. Unbelievable. That anyway, thing will wake you up. The, uh, the once mediocre director, George Mendeluk, directed this. And uh, you know what? It's, it's, a, it's a 
routine abduction chase movie, but Tom Berenger still has a few chops, and uh, the whole idea of using the Amber Alert system, not just as a way of promoting the title, but it actually has like a plot function, it's not bad. So I, I could be harsher on it, but I won't be because I know what kind of a film it is. And then, uh, real quickly, uh, Batman Assault on Arkham. This is a new DC Universe original animated movie. Uh, these are always surprisingly good, and the animation is always really, really sharp. And this is no different. Uh, I'm glad they're still doing these, and I kind of wish the people that do the feature films would take a cue from the people who write these because they, they get it. And, of course, this is, uh, you know, the Riddler is the, uh, the central villain in this case, and it's all really, really pretty sharp. So if you like these DC animated uh, features, I recommend them. And then last on the genre front is uh, The Quiet Ones which uh, is inspired by actual events, uh, as are almost all these movies these days, which means they really take a lot of liberties. Um, they've transplanted this uh, from the original location. It's, it's now a... Uh, it, it, it is no longer a Canadian incident, uh, but uh, still, the, the, the story is basically the same, which is it's a, it's a professor in the uh, late 60s, early 1970s, who's conducting these paranormal experiments where he doesn't believe in ghosts and possession. He thinks that there's a scientific reason why certain things happen, and he's trying to get to the scientific explanation. And uh, a bunch of students uh, you know, join him in his, in his experiments. And, of course, as we know, all hell breaks loose. He's trying to deal with this young woman who's just deeply, deeply disturbed, and one of the students starts to fall in love with her. Anyway, uh, it's a good cast, though. Jared Harris is the crazy professor, Sam Claflin and Olivia Cook rounding it out. It's on Blu-ray and digital HD, uh, meaning ultraviolet, and uh, not not bad. I, I actually thought for one of these kind of uh, heavily edited PG-13 uh, studio deals, it, it was not uh, not so not so bad. So that's the Lionsgate release from uh, the people at Hammer. It's one of the last Hammer horror films that I, actually maybe the first one that they've done that really looks like an old Hammer horror film. It really feels like a Hammer film. So. I applaud them for that. Anyway, a lot of extras on here. Good commentary with uh, John Pogue, who co-wrote and directed it, and uh, Tobin Armbrust, uh, who's the producer, and then a couple of featurettes and some outtakes. Uh, Wade, you know what my problem is with The Muppets Most Wanted? It's it not was, that it's a bad movie. It was unnecessary. Well, you know what it is? Look, for the, the, the first film, which caught everybody by surprise, because it was terrific, mm-hmm. But when you look at the Muppet movie and like all the celebrity cameos that were there, you got a feeling that all the celebrity cameos that were in the original Muppet movie, yep. uh, they were there because they loved the Muppets. Sure. With the Muppets Most Wanted, now all these celebrity cameos, it's like jumping on a bandwagon. Right. I mean, now that the Muppets are back, yeah. now we can do our cameo. Well, they, they, they didn't want to do a cameo when the Muppets were first coming back and then maybe wouldn't work out, so we want to do a cameo now. Sure. So, you, I mean, this thing is just a cameo a minute on Muppets Most Wanted, and it gets a little bit tiresome. Um, this one, it, it does feel, uh, the jokes feel a little bit off from the first one. The, uh, the songs are not as catchy as the last one. Um, it does have definitely a sense of that, you know, vaudeville kind of let's put on a show fun to it, which I did like. But it feels like, um, I feel like this is what happens when, when it's get, it gets a little, not complacent, but the inspiration was more with the first one than it was with any of the subsequent ones. Sure. Um, so the, kind of that creative spark feels a little bit off in this one. But still, look, Tina Fey and Ricky Gervais in a Muppet movie, uh, I, I get it. I think that's great. And it was written and directed by the same guys who did the first one, Nicholas Stoller and James Bobbin. Um, so I found this to be relatively amusing, but I was kind of hoping for more. Um, in fact, kind of the Muppets are almost like straight straight puppets straight men 
street puppets. Sure. Uh, to the actors, you know, with Tina Fey camping it up as a Russian whatever commander. But, uh, yeah. So, um, I don't want to say about the Muppets Most Wanted. I'll say it's a good rental. Uh, the first one you should own because it's terrific. It came out of nowhere. It was lots of fun. Love the songs. Funny stuff. Very self-effacing. This one's self-effacing too. They have there's in jokes about how sequels are never as good as the original, but still, um, I do feel like it's a little bit off. The inspiration uh, is not quite there, um, but still, it's a good rental. It looks good on Blu-ray. There's some decent uh, extras, including a blooper reel. Um, yeah, so Muppets Most Wanted. It's okay. Yeah, it's I, a bit I, of a letdown compared to the original. I think it has no purpose to exist. Well, anyway, what, what movies do have a purpose? Do you, do you think Hate Ship, Love Ship you know has what? a purpose to exist? Hate Ship, Love Hit. I'm so wait. Glad I'm leaving now because I'm gonna go get get get. I'm gonna get a, a, an iced tea. Would you like something to drink? Uh, water. You want water? Just water. Can you talk about Hate Ship, Love Ship, and other things while I get well, an iced tea and you get wa- and I I'm, get you water? What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about Guy Pierce for a moment. And uh, Guy Pierce is in both the uh, both of the next films I'm going to talk about. Hate Ship, Love Ship. Uh, thank goodness for Guy Pierce. He really he's like the anchor in this film. Uh, ostensibly, people are going to see this because Kristen Wiig does uh, a, a really a lovely kind of tender, very nuanced, dramatic turn. Um, but uh, gosh, Guy Pierce just always brings an extra level to everything, and this is a really good cast. The uh, Liza Johnson, who directed this, uh, does a wonderful job with this uh, screenplay by Mark Jude uh, Poirier. And the uh, the story is very simple: is that um, Kristen Wiig is a housekeeper who comes into the life of this family, this very dysfunctional, injured family. Nick Nolte's this crusty old guy. Haley Steinfeld's his, his granddaughter. Guy Pierce is her dad. His wife and her mother died, you know, uh, in the past. It's all this tragedy and these buried emotions. And it's the usual formula that we get where you take a damaged family and you inject a new person into it. And, of course, that creates new alchemical interactions and relationships and all the, the baggage gets left behind. New relationships are formed, yada, yada, so forth and so on. We've seen that a million times. It's a fairly routine arrangement, but it's a lovely film, and it's lovely because all of the actors just bring an extra level to it. And Haley Steinfeld keeps getting better and better. Nick Nolte isn't called on to do a great deal in this film, but he's solid. Kristen Wiig, lovely. Guy Pierce is the total anchor. And I'm hoping that Liza Johnson gets a chance to do uh, bigger and better things. On Blu-ray is a film I absolutely adore. Nobody else seems to adore it because it came and went, vanished almost instantly. And I find that rather sad. Uh, that's Breathe In. Did you see Breathe In, Mark? I did not. It, it, you know, it, here's the thing. Uh, Drake DeRamus, who made Breathe In. Drake's your anus? Oh, you are not fun. Uh, Drake DeRamus, who, who uh, did this, kind of had a, a big deal with the uh, uh, Grand Jury Prize in 2011 for Like Crazy. Which was the film which that you it, loved? I love. I like did not crazy. love that movie. I love no, that movie. It's phony. And phony. It, it introduced Felicity Jones, of course, who's and amazing. Who's amazing in it, and is is amazing in everything that she does. And uh, this is their reteaming. It is not as good as uh, Like Crazy, but by golly, it's it's awfully good. I mean, I just love the way he shoots films, and I love the way he stages scenes, and the quiet, and the way that actors kind of get to stew in their juices, and and don't have to talk all the time. And uh, Guy Pierce is wonderful. Felicity Jones is fantastic. Amy Ryan is fantastic. The, the, this, is, this is almost a kind of a Lolita-type deal. Um, you know, Guy Pierce and Amy Ryan are a married couple. They've got this, you know, teenage daughter, and they invite and basically an exchange student, played by Felicity Jones, into their home. 
and uh, but she is you know a musician. He's a music teacher, and there's suddenly you know some things stir between the exchange student and the dad. I know people are going to be like, yeah, I've seen that before. But you know what? Like the last film, somehow where Guy Pierce is involved, things don't feel stale. They don't. They don't feel familiar. It feels legit. It's just. It, it just. It, there's, a, there's a poetry to the way this film is put together, and uh, Drake DeRamus is great, and I hope somebody gives him a really big budget to do something really ambitious, because he's just got a great eye and a great, great way with actors. Uh, Wade, uh, Woody Allen has his most uh, substantial film role in years in a movie that is otherwise uh, But not, not one that, that he great. directed. Not one that he directed uh, or wrote. This is Fading Gigolo. This is uh, directed by John Turturro, who every once in a while comes... Um, uh, every once in a while, uh, takes on a directing project. Obviously, he's an actor, yeah. known for many Coen Brothers films. But um, he, he won the Camera Door at Cannes once for his directing debut. Yeah, very exciting stuff. So, um, Woody Allen plays a gigolo. It's very exciting. Nice. So John Turturro needs money, and uh, his friend, played by Woody Allen, convinces him to become a gigolo as a and way to make money. Pedal his manly wares. Pedal his manly wares. Obviously, this movie would be nothing without Woody Allen, not because he gives a great performance, but because it is so odd to see Woody Allen in a film that he did not uh, direct. So there is a certain amount of novelty there. I just wish that the that it was funnier. Sometimes it's funny. You know, sometimes when you um, when you hear Woody Allen, you're like, it's really only funny because Woody Allen is saying it. I think if you had given that role to somebody else, I don't know if it would be funny at all. But just the idea that Woody Allen is saying these lines just makes me laugh because at this point, no matter what you think of his personal life, every Woody Allen appearance on film is a gift. Otherwise, this is a pretty lumbering comedy. Um, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's whatever. Ah, uh, well, so much for, I'm, I'm not going to watch that one now. Now, if Woody Allen did a, did a, um, a uh, audio commentary, that would be cool. But instead, we just get John Turturro. All right, and uh, I got one more new film here, and then we'll uh, then I'm going to go into a, do a little World War One tribute, and then we'll get into our. Uh, what do you mean, like you liked World War One, like it's a tribute? Totally, God's Not Dead uh, was a breakout hit over the summer because nobody expected it to be. It was suddenly this movie shows up in the top ten. God's Not Dead, what? And people didn't really realize it's a faith-based film. It's uh, Kevin Sorbo plays this uh, philosophy professor who wants his students to declare that God is dead and this one kid who's an evangelical Christian says I'm not going to do that and he you know takes the challenge to prove that God exists and so forth and so on it, um, it this is a very very pandering movie this this panders completely to the persecution complex of a particular segment of southern evangelicals and um, it's great for them I mean if I were recommending a movie to them I would say screw all the summer movies watch this because this is this is your thing as a movie I, I think it's uh, incredibly weak. It's kind of, it's like a genre film, right? You recommend this to the people who want to see this and who know what they're getting and, and who are getting what they want. But uh, as a movie, it's not very well done. It's not very well written. It's certainly not very well directed. Although I will say, it's nice to see Kevin Sorbo do something that's not as ridiculous as what he's been doing for the better part of the last, you know, 20 years. But you have to wonder... and all the rest of that stuff. You have to wonder where, if you're an actor appearing in a film like this... Yeah. Is it necessary for you to adhere to the beliefs of the film, or can you be nah. a for-hire actor? You can be a for-hire actor. And still do a film like that. I mean, not like... You of course know, he can. With, okay, so of he's going to he have to sell yeah. his evangelical... Sure. sure. Well, well, Sorbo in this one, he gets to play the atheist. So, anyway, uh, you know what? World War One 
we are commemorating the uh, 100th anniversary of World War I and all of its various uh, ensuing dates and, and tragedies and battles and so forth. And as a result, we've got a ton of World War I stuff here, most of it from BBC, but the first two are not. Uh, the Village Series 1 is a, uh, a BBC series that begins roughly around the time of World War I, and uh, this is one of those great British period series, like Downton Abbey, like Upstairs Downstairs, that sort of follows um, a, a group of people over a period of uh, historical tumult, and it's really, really good. It is, uh, it's really first rate, it, 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 um, well written, well directed, incredibly well acted, probably kind of uh, missed a lot of people over here at the time, this is back in the mid-90s, and, uh, but it's got a lot of really, really good performances in it from Juliet Stevenson, a few other names you might recognize, uh, David Ryle. Uh, it's just a, it's a really, really solid cast. And, of course, it all you know, takes place primarily around this one little uh, rural village, uh, again, beginning around the time of World War I. And uh, it's, uh, it's pretty great. It is, it's, uh, it, it's just solid. And then we also have uh, The Wipers Times, uh, which has tr some tremendous acting in it from, uh, of all people, Michael Palin and uh, Ben Chaplin. And uh, uh, this also is a, uh, this is entirely World War I. It's set in 1916. And uh, Ben Chaplin plays this captain who uh, discovers uh, a, a printing press in, the, in this particular part of Belgium and decides that he's going to, you know, create a, a, uh, a, an enlisted man's newspaper to kind of boost the morale of all of his, uh, his guys. And the, uh, the name of it is The Wipers Times. And uh, it, this is actually loosely based on actual events. And I say very, very loosely because I think it's just, it's just based on, on newspaper printing and uh, enlisted uh, publications at the time. But uh, it's, uh, it's, again, really solid, really interesting, and takes a very, very uh, novel approach to uh, World War I. And that is from PBS. And then from BBC, we have a whole bunch of stuff that has all been out previously, but it's all World War I related, and it's worth checking out. One is uh, 14 War Stories, which is uh, really must-see. That is just superb stuff. Uh, My Boy Jack, starring uh, Daniel Radcliffe as the... Um, the son of Rudyard Kipling, and if you don't know that story, Rudyard Kipling's actual son, Jack, served in World War I, and I won't tell you what happened, but it's, uh, it's, it's just heartbreaking and wonderful all at the same time, and uh, surprisingly really good performances in here by Kim Cattrall, believe it or not. Uh, this is really good. If you, if you missed it on television or missed it on DVD the first time, definitely worth checking out. And uh, then the story, uh, 37 Days, the story of the final weeks before uh, the outbreak of World War I, Really, really good. Uh, historically very accurate. Uh, directed by Justin Hardy, who is probably going to have a really big career one of these days. Uh, Churchill's First World War is uh, a look back at, uh, you know, Churchill and how he sort of became the man that he would eventually be during the course of World War I. Um, this overlaps a lot with Gallipoli and uh, all the various movies. That Ooh, I love Gallipoli. Gallipoli. Right? Gosh, yeah. is that going to be on Blu-ray? I know. There's one for Criterion, right? And Royal Cousins at War from the BBC, which uh, is a two-part series that gets into all of the family entanglements that started uh, World War I, which, if you didn't know, uh, all the royals that were involved, they're all descendants of Queen Victoria. My mother used to say that if Queen Victoria had lived, World War I never would have happened because they were all her grandkids running all these countries. You know, Tsar Nicholas was a grandchild, and the Kaiser was a grandchild, and it's just, you know, amazing. So... 
You know what's not amazing? What's not amazing? Space Raiders. Now, Space Raiders... I remember Space Raiders. It's the worst. Now, Space Raiders came out in... I think in I na- paid to see that. Uh, that's, well, that, you know what? Here's the thing. Space Raiders came out in 83. Yeah. It, uh, it, was, it was producer Roger Corman, of course, like many, like many uh, uh, producers, jumped on the whole you know, Star mm-hmm. Wars space opera bandwagon and started doing lots of you know, cheapy knockoffs. And one of them was sp- uh, Space Raiders. This one is really... It's a terrible film, but it's really only nostalgic if you know... Sort of the the context in which it was made as a Roger Corman film, as 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 a Star Wars space opera ripoff, which is very popular at the time. Um, what I find interesting about the film is that they cre- now the music in the film was by James Horner because James Horner did start as a Corman guy. Yep. He also did Battle uh, Battle Battle Beyond the Stars. Um, and but here on the back of the um, uh, Blu-ray. The music is credited to Murphy Dunn. Now, I don't know who Murphy Dunn is. I think he, I know he wrote a song in the film. There's, there's like a couple songs in the film. He wrote a song in the film, but I don't think he did the score. So I don't know why James Horner is not um, is not credited on the box with having done the score. It's Murphy hmm. Dunn. That is a little bizarre to me. But anyway, the movie's terrible. It's, uh, it takes place on some distant planet and uh, whatever. All right. A uh, short eyes is an interesting film. Short eyes is from um, 1977, and it's all about this place called the Tombs, which was a uh, notorious uh, prison facility in Manhattan. And Bruce Davidson, who's terrific, and he would eventually go on to uh, get an Oscar nomination for Longtime Companion, and you may remember from the original X Men film, he plays this um, in real life the. The, the tombs, it's a facility in Manhattan where you get a lot of African-American and Puerto Rican inmates. And so into this African-American and Puerto Rican prison population comes this middle-aged white guy, played by Bruce Davidson. So not only is he a middle-aged white guy who's kind of like a bit ostracized, mm-hmm. he's in there for molesting a child. Now, if you're in prison, child, mol- child molesters are considered the lowest of the low within the prison population because a lot of inmates were abused sure. as children. That's sure. why they became criminals. So when, when a child molester winds up in prison, they are destroyed by the other inmates because they are considered the lowest. So everybody hates this guy, as they should, except for one prisoner who sort of takes him under his wing. And it's, the movie's all about and this Tim chi- Robbins. <laughs> exactly. Or it's Morgan Freeman. No. I can't remember. It is not. Uh, it's all about uh, Bruce Davidson is a child molester and the, and the prisoner who sort of helps him take him under his wing. So it's an interesting little um, relationship film that takes place in this prison. So nice. it's kind of um, – it went under the radar for a long time. Scorpion is releasing it. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting little movie. It's called uh, Short Eyes. It's pretty intense. It's also Curtis Mayfield's in it who also does uh, the music, and Freddie Fender is in it. Freddie Fender. I yes. remember Freddie Fender. Yes. Freddie Fender's my man. Uh, here's our Twilight Time pack for this month, and some really great stuff here. Uh, Twilight Time just, man, they, they just nail so many great titles. First up, and foremost of all of this, from the uh, Columbia Library is the Buddy Holly story. And uh, this is germane, especially because we recently had to uh, get on up the, the James Brown biopic, music industry biopics as old as... This can be, and uh, the Buddy Holly story, one of the one of the the first of the rock era, and certainly the best, um, certainly the best thing that Gary Busey ever did. Uh, he got an Oscar nomination out of this. He's terrific in the film. 
and then he lost his mind so shortly thereafter, and now he's a crazy man. But <laughs> he's, he's the best. But uh, <laughs> Steve Rash also, what did he do after this? It's just amazing. Uh, this is really pretty great, and and you know the band the band in this thing Charles Martin Smith is in the band. What? Watching this again, I was like, that's Charles Martin Smith. I totally forgot he was in this movie. And it's really fun to rediscover it again. It's just an awful lot of fun. And, uh, you know, uh, La Bamba is, is kind of a, a parallel story to the Buddy Holly story because obviously uh, Richie Valens and Buddy Holland perished together. But uh, really a lot of fun. This is on Blu-ray from uh, Twilight Time, available only at ScreenArchives.com. Limited edition. There's only a few, of these, a few thousand of these have been made, so get it now or forever hold your peace. Um, the Secret of Santa Vittoria uh, is one of those Stanley Kramer movies that just is so Stanley Kramery. And Mark and I will not get into our whole uh, Stanley Kramer backstory, but you know Stanley Kramer haunts us to this day. His daughter haunts us to this. Yeah. I, you know, I saw her actually. She was at uh, something. Kind of well, she continues to be everywhere. Yeah. And you know what? She's ageless because she has somehow learned how to apply makeup so know. prodigiously. And, and, and detailed and beautifully that she has stayed about 42 years old for like mm. 15 years. Uh, it, well, it, it is remarkable. But anyway, she, she and his widow keep his uh, memory alive, as do movies like this. Uh, the Secret of Santa Vittoria, which uh, features a fantastic score by Ernest Gold, who, of course, did the very, very famous uh, Exodus score for, uh, for Kramer as well. And uh, great performances here from Anthony Quinn, and Verna Lisi and Hardy Krueger and a lot of great performers of the era. Uh, it, it, this is, you know, the film has been uh, alternately praised and maligned over the years, and um, it's, uh, you know, it, I, I think it kind of belongs somewhere in the middle. It takes place around the end of World War II, and uh, deals, you know, it, it's all it takes place in this winemaking village in Italy, and and uh, Anthony Quinn really, really, you know, overacts tremendously in this thing, and. Uh, I think it's a sweet, charming film. Uh, it means to, I think, pay homage a little bit to The Treasure of Sierra Madre, but uh, sometimes I wonder. Uh, Fritz Long directed a movie called Manhunt, which is uh, one of those lost Fritz Long movies that uh, everyone always forgets exists. This was made for, in Hollywood in 1941 and uh, is really a pretty amazing wartime thriller. Uh, it's uh, the United States had not yet gotten involved in World War II, so you look at this with that in mind, keep that context in mind, and you realize, wow, this is kind of both a, a, an advocacy piece and a propaganda piece, but also a really terrific thriller, and uh, it's pretty great. Uh, I won't tell you what the what the plot is because the plot is is almost amazingly far fetched, and yet it totally works. So uh, I, I highly recommend this as a wartime thriller, a noirish wartime thriller, Manhunt, uh, Fritz Long, and an amazing performance by Walter Pigeon, the great Walter Pigeon. Uh, wrapping out the Twilight Time, there's a couple of Ken Loach films here, Riff Raff and Raining Stones, also on Blu-ray. Uh, they are together. It's one disc, <coughs> and uh, they've been out before on Blu-ray or on the DVD. You didn't say God bless you. I just I'm sneezed. not going to. I know. You can sneeze more. I'm, not gonna, I'm still not going to say God bless you. You're mean. Uh, and uh, these are, you know, like all Ken Loach films from this era, it's all about the performances. And uh, there's some just uh, amazing young actors who really, really strut their stuff in here. And all of them have gone on to become a really, really big deal. So uh, early Ken Loach in Riff Raff and Raining Stones. And then lastly, Follow That Dream. You know, you know who's in Follow That Dream? Oh, uh, Elvis. 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 I like Elvis movies. 
this is from 1962, the same year as Lawrence of Arabia. And uh, even though a lot of people were watching Lawrence of Arabia, a lot of other people were watching Follow That Dream, and they were dancing to Elvis. And it doesn't really matter what it's about because it's Elvis. So it's on Blu-ray, and it's Elvis, and he sings, and he's awesome. Wait, one movie we forgot to mention yeah. when we were talking about uh, Roger Corman is uh, the absolutely horrible uh, 1982 What the F, Sorceress. Now, Sorceress... I think I paid to see that, too. <laughs> I think I paid based on, like, the Frank Frazetta-ish artwork that they used to, to sell it. That's right. Yeah. Where, where, <laughs> and, and that's retained in the Blu-ray cover <laughs> art where you have the, the snake who is uh, strategically the, the uh, lion slithering the, her the, way between the woman's legs. Yeah, and the lion with the bat wings. And, uh, this whatever. movie starred um, <laughs> a, a pair of twins, Lee, Lee and Lynette Harris, who would wind oh up uh, becoming Playboy Playmates, and they play... Yeah, th- the funny thing is that there's no sorceress in the film. The film doesn't have it's a sorceress funny. in it. It's, it's got Goat Boy, and it's got uh, Pando, and it's got uh, the evil wizard Trigon, but there's no sorceress in it. So it's just one of those sorts of uh, crazy, you know, Dungeons and Dragony fantasy films, you know, of the, uh, you know, like Lady Hawk or sure. around. It was released around the Conan, the Conan the Barbarian time. Yeah, kind of like a little like Barbarella, but way less funny or self-knowing than Barbarella. Uh, this is just one of a series of fantasy films that just really trafficked in women wearing, you know, you know, ch- chainmail bikinis and running around with swords. And the thing with the movie is that it's just, you know, it's just terrible. There's really nothing good about this film. The dialogue is terrible. It's really poorly shot. It's, it's completely ridiculous. The costumes are bad. It looks like it was, it looks like it was shot for television. Um, so I would recommend it. I would recommend Sorceress only if you love really, really bad movies and they make you laugh. Uh, they do. They bad make movies make you laugh? They do. Okay, let me, let me uh, rock out on a handful of uh, Kino Lorber Studio classic releases now from uh, Kino Lorber. Uh, this is a new line from Kino Lorber, and they're clearly competing with Twilight Time and Olive in trying to raid these libraries and get some really good kind of uh, unheralded titles out there. One of them is The Children's Hour, which is based on a Lillian Hellman play. Uh, I've never seen the play. I've only ever seen the movie. And I've forgotten what a really, really slick movie this is. This is a really just a joy to watch because... Where else are you going to get Shirley MacLaine and Audrey Hepburn together with the late James Garner? Lots, of, pla- lots the, of places. The Children's Hour. Happens all the time. Fantastic. Uh, produced and directed by William Wyler, the great William Wyler from the Lillian Hellman play. who She, of course, uh, uh, was adapted here by John Michael Hayes, who does a fantastic job. Great score by Alex North. And uh, it's, just, it's just really, really, uh, uh, it's just great performance across the board. I mean, you realize how great the, you know, just absolutely great uh, actress chemistry. Uh, the story, you know, about takes place uh, in this uh, girls' school, this private girls' school. But it's just William Wyler, man. The guy just had a way of, of staging actors and making everything just fire on all cylinders. Uh, Charles Bronson in one of his uh, cheesy action epics, uh, post Death Wish. This one is Mr. Majestic, Majestic with a Y. I remember that. Remember that? Cost- yeah. uh, Richard Fleischer directed this. And uh, like the, uh, uh, the Children's Hour, this is from the Mirish Company, the, uh, the Mirish Brothers, who, of course, did all the great Billy Wilder films. So this is another one of their, uh, their UA productions. Um, uh, Richard Fleischer was pretty much kind of on the... Uh, he was not at, at his best in 1974, shall we say. But uh, Charles Bronson with a gun, uh, kicking butt, why not? It's, it's a genre unto itself. And another Charles Bronson film that's a little bit better is uh, Breakheart Pass, 
This is a little more legit. This is uh, um, based on the uh, the Alistair MacLean. Uh, was there was there a book? I think this was a book, right? Alistair MacLean wrote it, but I think he wrote it based on a on a book. It's it's his, like his own book, I think. I've never read any Alistair MacLean, so I wouldn't know for sure. But uh, anyway, um, you know, it's it, it, when you put Charles Bronson into a Western environment, somehow he feels. More legit. It feels right. It just feels right. It really does. Uh, ben Johnson and Richard Crenna and Charles Durning do a great job. Yeah, Charles Durning. He's the cool. wonderful Jill Ireland, who of course was married at the time to uh, Charles Bronson, also always uh, lovely in these movies. And then we have uh, The Unforgiven with Burt Lancaster and again Audrey Hepburn. The Unforgiven, not to be confused with Clint Eastwood's for Unforgiven. This is The Unforgiven. <coughs> uh, is a fantastic. Uh, God 19- bless you, Mark. Bless you, Mark. Gesundheit. Thank you. Gesundheit. I'm Jewish. I don't like the German Gesundheit. Uh, my fa- you know what my father used to say I'll find that? a Yiddish equivalent. You know, my father, when my father would sneeze, I would say Gesundheit. He says, whatever, you say Gesundheit. And he wouldn't like that because that was German. And German, you know, killed Jews. Okay. Swear All to right. God. All right. He would not want me to say. And, and what's funny is my father was like an atheist. So I really couldn't say God bless you either. Okay. So I didn't know what to say when my father sneezed. Okay. <laughs> you could say the French. What is it? A tesway. A tesway. It Lame. doesn't sound right. I know. No. no. Anyway, this is John Huston who did The Unforgiven, uh, one of his many just kind of, uh, you know, workman-like films. Not, not one of his very, very best, but it's, it's solid and better than most movies today, I'll say that. So, and always nice to see Audie Murphy show up in any movie, along with uh, John Saxon and a lot of other great people. So, uh, Burt Lancaster and Audrey, Audrey Hepburn just knocking out the, uh, doing a little bit of the old western uh, you know, uh, frontier cowboys and Indians thing here. Uh, Lillian Gish is in this too, by the way. Almost unrecognizable in some ways. And a great score about Dmitry Tiomkin, which is one of the reasons that Twilight Time does these things because the scores are just so amazing. Uh, wait, we have three from uh, Scream Factory. Now, of course, we love Shout Factory, and Scream Factory is their um, kind of genre, horror genre arm. Uh, first, we have Leviathan. Now, Leviathan uh, stars Peter Weller, and I have to say that the only reason why I care about Leviathan is because, um, I mean, I don't. It's sort, of, it's sort of like an abyss sort of a film, but it's like way lame version yeah. of the abyss is Leviathan, where uh, you have this crew, and Peter Weller's there, Richard Crenn is there, Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters is there, and Daniel Stern from Home Alone is there, and they go to the ocean floor, and they discover a big secret. Now, this film is directed by George uh, Cos- Cosmatos. yeah. Now, here's why I love George him. George Pan Cosmatos. Now, here's why I love him. Now, this has nothing to do with Leviathan. I'm going to go off on a tangent, Wade. George directed one of the one of my most hilarious bad movies ever. Leviathan came out a few weeks before uh, The Abyss. I'd rather watch The Abyss. Yeah. There's, there, there, there's some heavy stuff there in were, The There were three movies about undersea monstery things that happened all in the same summer. I remember there was Leviathan... And then there was uh, the abyss, and then there was another one in there, uh, deep deep sea seven, deep six. What what was that thing called? <laughs> I remember that. Remember that? I forgot the name. That of was that. the worst one. Okay. Anyway, go on. You George, like you like Cosmatos. George Cosmatos. I'll tell you why. Yeah. He directed one of my favorite terrible movies ever. I know what you think. Which one could it be? You're thinking. He directed Cobra. Oh, he did, didn't he? I love Cobra. Oh, Cobra had right. the okay. Now, here's what you're thinking. I know Wade, Wade and I are about to geek out. Now, <laughs> the reason why we love Cobra, which is a, Stilve- a Stallone film. It was Stallone trying to find another franchise. He, he was like, no, no more Rocky, no more Rambo. It was Cobra was going to be the new guy. Yes, he was like the super-duper cop, like the urban super-incredible yeah. cop. So, okay, the, the line that I love from Cobra is not, <laughs> I'm the disease, you're the disease, and I'm the cure. Everybody knows you're the disease, and I'm the cure, which became like 
this buzzword, like you go blank is a disease and yeah. blank is the cure, become this yeah. catch-all phrase throughout the 80s. Sure. No, no, no. Here's the best part. This is the part I love in Cobra. <laughs> so in the beginning of the film, somebody's robbing a supermarket. Yes. It's like the seizure suit. This one guy is robbing a supermarket. I remember okay. the guy... Guy's badass. He's gonna yeah. rob this. He's got a gun. He's got a bomb. He's gonna rob Damn the right. supermarket. Damn and of right. course, Cobra. We you always know, chomping on his toothpick or his match, whatever he would, do, whatever he would suck on, like a like a tough guy. He has black glasses, his black shirt. Cobra. He's, he's yeah. Cobra. So he's stalking the supermarket, and the bad guy who's who's you know who's taking siege to the supermarket goes goes. I got a bomb. I'm gonna blow up this supermarket. And then and then Stallone looks looks like in that sideways super dramatic glance. He goes. Go ahead. I don't shop here. <laughs> yeah! He was Cobra. I love oh, that movie. that's awesome. That's just the best, worst movie ever. It, it's, it, it was a lot of fun. I, it's a guilty pleasure. No, that's Cobra. Too. Of course, <laughs> stuff he's doing with Leviathan. But that's Cobra. Anyway, uh, we also have uh, from Scream Factory, Without Warning. Now, Without Warning um, is another bad film. It's about the... the, the, the you know, some of these films, look, we love Shout Factory and Scream Factory. You know, sometimes they pluck these things out and try to kind of, kind of boost it up a little bit in the packaging. But really, the films aren't that great. This is from 1980. It does have a very good cast. It's got Martin Landau, Dave, early David Caruso, Jack Palance for some reason. Um, you know, Neville Brand is in there. And it's about uh, these kids, and they go to a lake. And while at the lake, they discover this extraterrestrial who sucks the blood of their victim. And this... This this alien is so stupid looking. This alien reminds me of. Do you remember the episode of Star Trek with uh, This Is Tranya? Oh, remember that? Corbin might maneuver. Yes. Do you remember sure. how bad that? Ad- now, in, in in the episode, the alien was supposed to look bad yeah. because he yeah, was a, they, he, he was a front for Ron Howard's brother. Yes, exactly. In this film, without warning, it's just that bad. So the alien, in without warning, looks as bad as that alien looked. But Clint Howard, as an adult, is scarier than any alien. I know. It really is true. Yeah. Uh, anyway, also from Shout Factory is uh, or Scream Factory is Deadly Eyes. Deadly Eyes, uh, directed by Robert Klaus, who also directed Enter the Dragon. This is um, also not very good. Um, it's about uh, this grain is contaminated with steroids, and so these huge, large black mice or rats start eating people in Toronto. Really silly stuff. Again, this is we're talking the '80s, folks. So there's a, there's a lot of weird low budget horror stuff that came out during that time. Not all of it, Corman. Um, some of the stuff is pretty nostalgic if you remember those times, but they're really not very good movies. Anyway, there you go. So it's Deadly Eyes Without Warning and Leviathan from the good folks at Scream Factory. Got three here from uh, WarnerArchive.com, uh, the Warner Archive collection. Uh, two of them are, are middling to okay. One of them is great. The middling to okay ones are both noirs. Uh, one is The Hunted, which is just a kind of a straightforward B-noir from the, uh, from the era. Uh, I, I had never seen this, and there's nothing particularly bad or nothing particularly remarkable about it. It's just solid. Some very good second-tier actors, and uh, this was made for Monogram in the 1940s. So it's kind of an escapist, uh, you know, uh, escapist noir from the uh, the World War II era. Perfectly acceptable. Uh, Pierre Watkin, Larry Blake, and Russell Hicks uh, star in it, along with Preston Foster. And then the other one that is uh, a little bit more enjoyable is Stage Struck, which is this, um, it kind of takes the, the backstage uh, drama of, you know, I'm, I'm a young actress and I'm going to make it on the stage. And it combines it with a murder mystery and noir and a lot of uh, caper misdirection. And it ultimately doesn't actually uh, make a whole lot of sense. But um, it's enjoyable to watch. It's perfectly enjoyable. This was also a monogram film. And uh, Kane Richmond, great performance. Audrey Long. 
uh, Conrad Nagel. These are people who were very, very uh, familiar to audiences of the day in these kinds of films. The one that you got to check out is uh, Trial. Trial is, uh, is excellent. It is a superb film. Glenn Ford, Dorothy McGuire, Arthur Kennedy. It's a great cast, fantastic cast. And um, uh, this was directed by Mark Robson, who, who was one of the legendary directors of the, of the day, one of the legendary studio directors. I mean, tons of great movies to his career. Um, Glenn Ford, uh, kind of an early civil rights figure in this. And this is a, basically a courtroom drama. Uh, it takes place right after uh, World War II. And uh, it's, it's uh, about helping this, uh, this, like, this young uh, Latino kid um, defending him after he's been accused of killing this uh, this young white girl, and it's a, you could say it's a little bit of a To Kill a Mockingbird vibe going on, but it's still it's very very different, and it's addressing a very different dynamic, and it gets into blacklisting and uh, a lot of these other issues of the day, and it's really surprisingly sharp, and uh, it's kind of vanished from people's top ten lists and and uh, of the era, but man, it's really really sharp. So Trial, not to be confused with The Trial. With Glenn Ford, directed by Mark Robson. Really good movie. And, uh, Mark, let's go out with one more criterion. Yay! Uh, this is a, the, the English language criterion of the week. Love Streams, John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins. Uh, now, this is not on the Cassavetes box the, set. Not in the Cassavetes box set. I'm not quite sure why. I assume that it's probably a licensing issue. Um, because this was produced by someone who just died. Not Robin Williams. Lauren Bacall. Not Lauren Bacall. Who else just died? We had uh, another obituary recently. Uh, Let's put it this way. People did not remember him fondly. That, that guy from Game of Thrones who suddenly died and then they're not going to recast him. No, this would be uh, Menachem Golan. Oh, this is back when Golan was trying to get legit. They're trying to get legit. Uh, this is Golan, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus of Canon Films that were trying to get legit and they decided to do a Cassavetes film which in a certain sense you have to say that's really admirable and at the same time you have to say what the hell were they thinking? Well, why not? Look, so well, someone's got to yeah, bankroll those films. Sure, but, but if you're, at the same time you're trying to go legit. Cassavetes films were never mainstream. They were admired. They were beloved by a certain art film crowd. But if you're, Golan, if you're Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus and you've got canon films and you're known for making a lot of Chuck Norris movies and some, you know, the, uh, the ninja movies yeah, and all that crap and, and the American ninja movies and all that junk and, and you're a schlockmeister and you want to suddenly say, we are legit. If you're Harvey and Bob and you're doing that, yes, you're, you're going to be doing Shakespeare in Love and The English Patient and so forth. The Cassavetes film is not going to get it done. Now, that said, Love Streams is a lovely movie. It just didn't get it done for them. None of the other films that they did got it done. Uh, but a lot of the usual characters show up in this. Seymour Cassell is fantastic. By the way, Seymour Cassell stars in um, The Dependables. Have you seen, have you I seen, have seen that. Seen that? I, I saw the poster. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that. I have to watch it. I've got to get a hold of that somehow. I don't even know who's distributing that. I just saw that, and I was like, we've got to get a hold of that. Anyway. Uh, but this is great, and in, uh, especially great here is uh, John Cassavetes, a man and his the man and his work from 1984, the hour-long documentary uh, that's all about uh, the making of the film, which is first-rate. So I mean, it is a really, really good uh, Cassavetes film. It's a it's a throwback to his early films, uh, and it's unfortunately very uh, kind, somewhat kind of forgotten. So uh, from from 1984.
Love Streams, the John Cassavetes film on Criterion. Thank you, Criterion. Once again, a dual-format Blu-ray and DVD edition as they are about to phase the format out. And with that, Mark, we are done. Please Any, no. We didn't talk about Lauren Bacall, so let's let's go out on Lauren Bacall. I mean, Lauren Bacall was, you know, she was, uh, I mean, that, we don't sort of need to recommend any of her best films because everybody, that's... It's not like Robin Williams. It's not like she was gone before her time. We've kind of been expecting that one for a while. She's Although she did while. do an episode of Family Guy. Very surprised about I that. I didn't know that. Yes, she did. Recently. All I'll say is that you realize, and you know, and these kids today with their rock music, you realize <laughs> that when Lauren Bacall was 19, yes. Humphrey Bogart was 25 years older than her. Yes. They were shacking up. Yep. Bogey was 44. She was 19. Good for Bogey. <laughs> I'm jealous of Bogey. All right. That's good.